Hi friends, before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank you for choosing to listen to the surprising rebirth of Belief in God. We'll soon be celebrating 500,000 downloads since launch and winning a Zenga prize for podcast journalism. If you're enjoying the series and you'd like to help me reach even more people with thinking faith, can I encourage you to support this podcast? Becoming a silver supporter means you get early access to episodes and bonus content, Gold supporters also get signed books and a monthly catch-up with me on Zoom, if you'd like it. The links to support are with the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. Enjoy today's episode. There was just this basic error in the case against religion that was being made and that it constantly treated it as as a as an argument out of out of philosophy or or out of science it was it was about the existence of god as i've said elsewhere surely his most boring characteristic um (laughs) whereas um, people do not become or stay religious believers because they they are they are possessed of an abstract conviction about the existence of god and the minute he said it i thought oh I, you know, I can do that. I can get through this. I can do this. And uh, I look back. I look back, and it always moves me just to talk about it because I feel like God put Himself out of the picture, so I could hear it. You know, which is a, a powerful, powerful uh, statement of His humility and His grace. <laughs> it's like it's like another lifetime, pal. But yeah, I it can't yeah. get away from it. Welcome to the surprising rebirth of Belief in God podcast with me, Justin Briley. Today, a bonus edition of the show before we begin our next act of the documentary series, looking at the rebirth of the Bible. Today, however, we'll be hearing about the conversions of two influential modern writers, Francis Spufford, a prize-winning British author of fiction and non-fiction, and Andrew Claven, a former Hollywood screenwriter and best-selling crime novelist. Both have surprising stories of finding Christian faith as adults. Before we get going, I just want to remind you the surprising rebirth of belief in God is also a book now on its second printing. You can order the book and even get signed copies via my website, justinbriley.com, where you can also subscribe to my newsletter and get chapter one for free. If you can support my work there, then as well as helping to make this podcast possible, you'll also receive early access to new episodes plus bonus content. Gold level supporters will also get signed copies of my books and the chance for a monthly catch up with me if you want it. Your support makes a huge difference to me producing more of these thinking faith resources and you can support via patreon tax deductible giving from the usa or a one-off gift via paypal again the links for the book the newsletter and to support are at justinbriley.com or just click the links with today's show i believe we are seeing the first signs of a rebirth of belief in god in our day and we'll return next time to our documentary format tracing that story But the two long-form conversations you'll hear today are, for me, great examples of that rebirth happening in the lives of two talented writers. 
Francis Spufford is a celebrated author and his award-winning titles include non-fiction works such as The Child That Books Built, as well as fiction such as Golden Hill, set in 18th century New York and winner of the Costa Book Award for a first novel, and his most recent book, Light Perpetual, long-listed for the 2021 Booker Prize. Francis is also a professor at Goldsmiths College, where he teaches creative writing. In 2012, Francis wrote Unapologetic, why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense, a book responding to the anti-religion of new atheism and which charted some of his own journey away from faith and back again. This interview was first recorded for the Reenchanting podcast, presented by myself and Belle Tyndall. We join the conversation as I ask Francis why, after abandoning the Anglican church of his upbringing and spending over 20 years as an atheist, he eventually found himself being drawn back to faith. I needed to, I needed to tell the, um, the personal story because faith only makes sense in lives and unless yeah. you describe where it's happening it, it's it's abstract and faith mm-hmm. is never abstract it's mm-hmm. always seated in in the lives of of of, of people um um but i also didn't i i wanted to out myself as a sinner because <laughs> i am one and in fact so is everyone else which is which is relieving for the you know the amal prop um um but without without leaving a, a kind of sticky trail of embarrassment behind me. Yeah. Um, so what I've what I said in the book is what I'll say now, which is that I made one of the classic, one of the classic male mistakes in my in my marriage, and and discovered that um, that the that the resources I thought I had for for dealing with serious emotional failure didn't do the job and discovered instead to my surprise that that there was a a mercy i didn't have to provide myself mm. um waiting for me if i went looking for it mm. um and of course one of the places i went looking for it um was in church because that's that's the way i'd been formed culturally um, and you know, my generation church going was a lot more normal than it became later. And I, I, I wonder what happens now in the lives of people who, who don't necessarily think that you know I am in trouble. Mm. Where shall I look? Mm. Um, and it just doesn't occur to them. Mm. Um, mm. Um, but it occurred to me, and and a kind of assurance of of things being mendable Mm -hmm. um came came with it and then step by step um historic christianity made sense as well um and what i what i say in an unapologetic is that you know i absolutely recognize that there is a kind of there is an accidental element here there is the accident of my background there's the accident Mm. of time and place and the fact that i come from a culture saturated in christianity even though it doesn't necessarily know it um so when i went looking for 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 the divine the christian forms were were just waiting for me um Mm -hmm. available there is an element of accident in that and yet my experience was that was that i was at each step 
cautiously testing it for emotional solidity and truth. I was kind of wrapping my knuckles <laughs> suspiciously on each each piece of Christianity as it was mm. as, as 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 it appeared. Um, sounds a bit more ungrateful than I actually was, but <laughs> but I, I I don't want to do you know the the, the famous C.S. Lewis most reluctant convert in all England. Oh come on, <laughs> Clive Staples, you undoubtedly weren't the most reluctant convert in all England. That's just that's 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 it's the a good human line, impulse. Though, isn't it, it is it? a very good line, but it, that's the human impulse for drama. And I know I, I know how those work. I'm a writer, um, but I'm trying not to be too writerish about okay. about this. Yes. So. Um, no, I wasn't reluctant. I was, I was relieved and mm. grateful, but I was suspicious and to some extent embarrassed yeah. given that I'm, I'm mm. British and male and of a certain generation. And religion is one of those subjects that comes thickly wrapped in yes. Layer, yes. tissue yes. paper layers yes. of yeah. embarrassment. So, um, yeah. I am. Um... I grew up in a family that all went to church. I really relate. So you start the book unapologetic by talking about your daughter. And you said, my daughter's six and she's about to find out that we're embarrassing (laughs) (laughs) because we go to church. And I relate to that so much. I could probably pinpoint the day that I realized my family's a bit embarrassing because we go to church. So I, I... I said, I've said this to you already, but it, it's the book I wish I had written. <laughs> Unapologetic. <laughs> but it's also the book I'm very glad I didn't because you did it perfectly. It needs doing again over and over. And what Unapologetic was trying to do um, is this is this kind of n- n- culturally necessary but never finished task of going, of going here's some personal stuff yeah. here's some permanent stuff that comes out of out of history and 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 theology but here's here's the bridge that turned out to work for me between between um a personal history and a personal story and mm. and this thing over here christianity and and christianity exists in the minds and hearts and possibly souls let's not rule that one out of believers and and it has to be represented and reimagined in every generation and every place yeah. and and every culture and all of I'll say our our meaning Christians uh, all of our predecessors did it that's what medieval mm. mystery plays are that's what a lot of those oil paintings are that's mm. In order, in order for the the kind of for, for Christianity's stuff about eternity to to fit together jigsaw piece wise with 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 now, whenever now is, people have to do some 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 connecting mm. up. Um, so unapologetic was an attempt to to connect up Christianity for that kind of moment full of rather shouting new atheists around 20, 2010, yeah. 2012. Yes. Well, about, it so. came very much in the wake of that publishing boom of, you yeah. know, God is not great, Chris Fitchens, The God Delusion, Richard oh, Dawkins, roll my eyes. Sam um, Harris and all this. <laughs> Sorry to give you palpitations. But the in a sense, you know, the, there had already been responses, you yeah. know, the Alistair McGraths and the theologians and the, the, the apologists, you know, saying, well, look, here's, here's a rational case. But you, your book was quite different to that, wasn't it? What, what it were was, you trying to do? Mine was ruder. <laughs> it was sweary. Let's, let's, it that was, was the main sweary. difference. Let's, let's yes. be honest. Um, Absolutely sweary. But also all of those people were, were responsible in different ways for more than their own their own take they were speaking from from inside the church yes. they were um they were attempting to answer 
argument with argument. Mm-hmm. They were um, they were so they were they were hampered in the first place. I thought by 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 needing to be to be these these responsible voices. I know the opposite of that is an irresponsible voice. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> Which mine is was. possibly a good good description well, of, of unapologetic. But Christianity yeah. has to be wild as well as tame, otherwise <laughs> it's not kind of comprehensive. It's not and real it's, otherwise. Exactly. Is it? it's, um, it's, yeah. Um but I mean so 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 I thought there was a kind of tone of voice problem with mm. a lot of the existing yes. replies in that they weren't they weren't free to move fast enough on their mm. on their feet. And if Christopher Hitchens was doing eloquent scorn, there ought to be some <laughs> eloquent scorn and eloquent jokes coming yes. back, I thought. Um so there was there was that. But there was also my strong feeling that the book was um was was fitting and you know filling a, a, an unfilled need because there was just this basic error in the case against religion that was being made and that it constantly treated it as as a as an argument out of out of philosophy or or out of science it was it was about the existence of god as i've said elsewhere surely his most boring characteristic <laughs> um where, whereas um, people do not become or stay religious believers because they they are they are possessed of an abstract conviction about the existence of yes. God. They are they are Christians or Jews or Muslims because they they have a strong need for the the the, the love of God and the mercy of God, and because they feel that they're getting it. Mm. Um, it's an emotional mm. thing. Mm. It's not really an argument about cosmology, and and though. The arguments from cosmology or or from evolutionary biology going, actually, Mr. Dawkins, that doesn't follow. Sorry, Professor Dawkins, that doesn't follow, um, were good and necessary. I didn't think that they actually dealt with yes. the yeah. fundamental problem, which is that he was having the wrong argument. He kept right. pulling yeah. religion away yeah. and trying to treat it as kind of some sort of dodgy dodgy inferior grade science. Yes. Um, and it isn't. It's something else mm. um and i wanted i'm getting worked up and it's, it's been it's been a decade i could calm down now and in fact what i was trying to say at the beginning of this was that somebody else needs to do it again somebody else who's not think, me because the cultural moment has moved on this is your moment Belle. the new well, atheists I'm, have calmed I'm down yes off you go everything you're offering is proving yourself wrong <laughs> <laughs> it's still in you i can tell the fire still burns <sighs> I'd like to challenge your never repeating yourself clause, if I may. (laughs) Just before we jump into the rest of today's show, one of the voices you'll hear on this podcast is friend of the show, Glenn Scrivener, a brilliant Christian communicator. Glenn has recently put together an online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, stimulating and assumes no prior knowledge. If you've been thinking about exploring faith for yourself or if you want something to share with your friends, 321 is just the thing. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are beautifully shot and animated. I found it a really engaging and practical way of connecting the big ideas in this podcast to our everyday life. I'm already thinking of people I can share it with. See for yourself at 321course.com slash jb it's completely free just start a free account with your email and a password and you're in there's no spam no hidden costs go to 321course.com slash jb and discover life according to jesus you end the book i talked about the beginning i may as well talk about the end you you write that christianity makes 
hopeful sense. It makes realistic sense. Mm. And it makes, and this is my favorite, battered about but still trying sense. And so we're 10, 11-ish years on from that. And if we think about the type of Christianity that's being portrayed, it's still that battered about but still trying sense that is catching people's eye. So I'm thinking about, I don't know if you've read it, but Nick Cave and Sean O'Hagan's book. Have you read that? I haven't read it, but I keep being told I must read well, it. And I and yeah. I, I will. I read I read um I read um a piece about um his um the interview with Rowan Williams, yes. I think. I thought it was yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Um yeah. well, Hope, his Hope whole, Faith and Carnage. Hope is that Faith and Carnage. Yeah. Yeah. I recommend it to yeah. anyone that's listening. And it's because what I would say is that it's an ode to a battered about but still trying. Yeah. Um kind of Christianity. No, that, is, that will be appearing on my bedside table. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, please. And it and it's caught so much attention. Yeah. And also the there's a film out at the moment, an amazing film called Women Talking. And again, it's that it's uh if it doesn't if it seems that if Christianity doesn't make sense in 3D, mm. it's not no. worth it and yeah. people aren't interested. So what's so interesting is okay, we're 10 years, 11 years down the line and yet people are still craving the exact type of Christianity that that you're talking about the type that's lived out and and I think it's about that voice as well because Mm. I think the reason that there's been so much interest in Nick Cave's book is because he's not necessarily the person people expected to start talking about faith and Jesus and church and and so it's it's when someone with that voice and you know he can be sweary as well so but there's a sense in which it just makes it less tame and sort of you know churchy and and it's just somehow Mm. makes it kind of suddenly I think people realize oh Normal people Quite. believe this stuff. It's yeah, like, also, and the whole range of normal people behave it yeah, too. From, yeah. b- believe it too. From from from. I mean, rock stars, rock stars, right round the kind of human compass. I think the important thing is escaping from um, from the constrained tones of voice, the ones that suggest that religion only belongs in some mm. quiet little mm. corner of the human zoo, and that it will disappear in a in a in a kind of puff of bad mm. feeling if we raise our voices. Um, <laughs> mm. And you don't have to be sweary to talk about religion. I sometimes regret that I settled on 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 the sweary way of, of disrupting <laughs> the expected tone of voice quite, in a poetic. I in, it. I'm glad you quite <laughs> liked it. I quite liked it at the time. But, but the result is that's only one way of speaking naturally. And, and, and it's quite a kind of, it's quite a blokey way of, of, of it too and every now and again i meet someone who's disappointed that i'm not in fact quite the speaker in unapologetic <laughs> you're that larry chap i'm that not we seem no to i'm not i'm quite book. polite yeah. and I, I certainly don't swear in churches um but but it was a good enough solution at yeah. the time but there are lots of other ones yeah. too yeah what's important is a natural voice yes, that that, yes. that comes out of experience and is not afraid of the of the hard bits, yeah. which is mm. which is all of the bits of human experience that are that are that can't be wrapped tidily up. And what I hear about the Nick Cave book is that is that is that he found faith in exactly one of those kind of dark pits mm, where yeah. there were no easy answers, yeah. um, um, which is one of one of faith's abodes mm. for mm. those who who find themselves looking for it there. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but it can hold carnage. Yeah. Faith and hope can hold and sit alongside carnage. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And can be found inside carnage. Inside as well. carnage. Yeah. Absolutely. You are sort of going back to your writing a little bit in that you're not I, I hope this is fair to say, a Christian writer, as we but you're a writer who happens to be a Christian. 
And how does that nuance, how do you feel that nuance plays out in your work? And is that an important nuance to keep or actually doesn't really matter? It probably does matter. And to be to be kind of crude and commercial about it, um, it's a help to me to be a mainstream writer who is sure. known to have this weird connection. <laughs> um, Occasionally writes odd books about Christianity. Yeah. 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 Uh, also... This is one of the unfair things about about trying to reply to the new atheists. I could be heard because I already had a mainstream yes. platform, yes. Um, and Nick Cave could be heard yeah. because he's Nick Cave. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Sure. Um, and but one should use these advantages when one has <laughs> when one has got them. Um, uh, it's an it's a neat formula, and I've used it myself. The writer who happens to be a Christian rather than a Christian writer, but. But I think the line is actually really blurrier than that because you write out of everything you understand about the world and faith is kind of basic by now to to the way I understand the world and it comes up even when I'm not meaning to put it it in. Um, So it's not incidental. Happens to be a Christian sounds as if it's a kind of optional add-on yeah, for yeah. me, and it and it's not. <laughs> On the other hand, it doesn't ever limit my choice of subject matter or 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 my sense of having a free hand in how to make a book. And it's probably significant that I tend not to write stories about well-behaved Christians yes. trying hard in Christian yeah. communities. Yeah. So I'm not describing the life of faith except incidentally what i tend to be describing is 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 the the more chaotic behavior of those whose lives without them necessarily knowing it kind of echoes the the kind of the deep christian yeah. themes i've I, sometimes thought of myself as being like a person with a sheet of paper who's holding a magnet underneath it and you pour the iron filing the iron filings on top of the piece of paper and they go into a shape yes. um and and uh, it's the it's it's the christian gospel under there that's being that's mm-hmm. being the magnet mm-hmm. and i find that the stories i want to tell without thinking it through mm-hmm. fall into a kind of uh, a kind of redemption shape yes. Um, yes. because of the magnet yeah. i've got underneath the piece of paper i mean when i read golden hill it was just a great read and it's a wonderful way in which you you kind of tell the story but obviously i I noticed kind of as a christian you know the bits where obviously the the hero is kind of goes to the church and and has those moments of of kind of grace in this kind of very up and down story of his life and uh, and and it's not you know it's not as though the church is presented as some perfect uh you know uh, sanctuary there's judgmentalism there's you know but there's still something about the way that you describe the experience of just being able to be somewhere where suddenly he feels like he can give his problems and his, yeah. you know, the awfulness of his situation over to something else, even for a moment. Mm. And I just, I just really enjoyed the way that you, you weave that in. And obviously that's not necessarily something who doesn't, who, who, who is writing will necessarily include in their story because they don't have your experience of, no. of that being the way that you've experienced church. And therefore you can tell that for someone else. And it's a matter of kind of artistic in artistic integrity that the story should work even if you are a non-believer reading yes. it and you don't you don't get those dimensions yeah. mm. of it but but yes and i wanted to treat the availability of a church in 18th century new york as a natural part of the landscape yeah. which it yeah. which it was Absolutely. and i wanted the, the the kind of the chaotic adventures of of my hero mr smith in new york to mean that he he bounced into church in a in a 
um, in a in a state of um, in a state of guilt quite as yes. often as he bounced catastrophically into people's beds in a yes. state of excitement. Um, yes, um, exactly. Yeah, um, I loved it. Yeah. Um, okay, this is one of the one of the natural fits for me between writing novels and Christianity is that Christianity is an anti-perfectionist religion um at least the non-heretical versions of it <laughs> of it of it are you can you can um you can you can, let's not go there anyway well, but, there but, are but other mainstream christianity around, yes. <laughs> expects human beings yeah. to screw up yeah. to, to be yeah. polite about it so and they they htpfu as thank you thank you um I, what a good phrase i must, <laughs> must remember that um um the i mean so 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 for me, it, it is a, a warrant for a kind of, for as, as universal a sympathy and curiosity as you can manage yeah. about mm. all of the different ways that human lives work out. It is not for us to, 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 to judge or to limit our sympathy when as, as believers, we don't think God limits his sympathy. Who are we, mm. as Pope mm. Francis said, who are we to judge? Mm. Um, that doesn't mean that you you have no moral framework. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you don't think that some actions are, mm. blimey, terrible. Yeah. Um, but but on the other hand, your human sympathy does not stop mm. um, at some arbitrary arbitrary yeah. brink. And this goes well with novels, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Yeah. I mean, coming back to the Narnia novels that you were sort of captivated by as a yeah. child... That's obviously a kind of, you know, one of those examples of being able to be lost in an imaginary world and sort of, you know, and so on. Um, and I, I'm, I've, I've always been intrigued by the fact in the sense that, that Lewis kind of started writing children's fiction and that sort of fantasy literature sort of quite late in his writing life. And he started really after his conversion, you know, with the sort of more objective case for Christianity type stuff, you know, mere Christianity, the problem of pain and so on. I, and I've heard it said that perhaps he almost realize that there's a limit to what that mm. can do and actually it's really the imagination is where the game's at when it comes to inspiring people to think about things beyond yeah. <laughs> the, the, what's in front of you is that something you sort of can see as well I, I i i yes i agree um and i think it was probably truer in fact to the springs of his own kind of ascent to christianity mm. if i remember rightly um the way that 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 Tolkien finally closes the Christian deal with yeah, C.S. Lewis yeah. is he says, kind of, you know how you respond to stories. Yeah. Okay. Um, imagine, imagine, you know, imagine a story that you respond to with, you know, with whole heart like that. Only this one happens to be true. Yeah. Um, it's a story-shaped faith when it comes to him, and obviously he was a he was very good at arguing. He was mm-hmm. a great rhetorician with in some ways a temptation towards the kind of the knockdown argument yeah, yeah. and some of his knockdown arguments i have to reveal don't always hold up if you look sure. at them skeptically <gasps> but the imagination does yes um and i think that the the turn towards the turn towards narnia and 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 children's books are they're not a sign of of defeat in argument, but I think they are a sign of him recognizing that you you, you go beyond yes. argument, where you where you where you offer the story instead. I think I think there was an article he wrote for I can't remember exactly what it was. I think it was the the New York Review or something, and and he 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 had this phrase about it was about you know using literature and imagination and fantasy writing 
uh, to tell effectively religious stories. Mm. And, and he used this phrase, I think it was something like, um, imagination helps us to steal past the watchful dragons. Yeah. Uh, there's the sense in which I think he saw it as a way of, of getting past people's defenses, you know, yeah. and, and I, Again, coming back to yours, I, I feel almost like the way you tried to say, look, let's look at Christianity from this emotional point of view. It sort of says, let's not worry too much at this point about, you know, the, the reason and the sort of can can a, a God really exist in this material universe? And there was a sense in which you appeal to that, whichever one it is, like left or right side of the brain. I can to never say, remember either. Which <laughs> a, this, that this is, that there's something holistic about yeah. the way we talk about God. And it's ne- it, it can never be just a, a purely, yeah, um, that rational side of your mm-hmm. brain. It has to appeal to yeah. this imaginative um, side. I, 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 I am a strong valuer of the rational side of our brains as well. And I, I think the watchful dragons um, analogy is some ways slightly misleading because we need the watchful dragons mm. to to save us from from all of the various frauds, impostures, and forms of bullshit that <laughs> the world is so rich. Yeah. Um, it's just that they, that, you know, there's some things they can't watch for us, and I, yeah. I don't think we need to steal past them, but we need to supplement them with mm. with 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 other kinds of of perception. Um, I also don't like the idea of of outwitting people's defences because I, <laughs> they on the whole they need their defences, um, and. You shouldn't have to, I suppose, oh, heavens. Now, there is Christian warrant for going, breaking in like a thief in the night, isn't there? <laughs> Curses. Um, but um, <sighs> you don't want to be, in a sense, tricking people. No, you uh, don't. Uh, um, but you, you, yes. and, but what, you, what you want is to, is to, hang on, no, we need to, let's, let's, okay. let's, let's, let's pause and distinguish a bit okay, here. There's, there's what you'd want to do if you were doing successful apologetics, yes. that's, that's one thing. And there's also what you want to do if you were just attempting to, attempting to be as truthful as you could about the world as you, as you actually understood it. And one of them is a bit more rhetorical than the mm, other. Mm. Um, no, you don't want to trick people, but you, you, you want to, you want to show the reason for the hope that is in you as the, as the epistle of Peter says in, in, in the New Testament. And, and that kind of showing has got as much to do with with storytelling mm. and with the exchange of of what you have understood and felt mm. not in the expectation that it will that it will that it will arm twist somebody else into feeling something they're not naturally feeling but but as, as a way of going which is kind of necessary in the modern world. There's, there's, there are large areas of human life where there are things to recognise where, 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 where contemporary culture doesn't do a very good job of giving us a vocabulary. Mm. You know, you know those uneasy feelings you have sometimes. Well, actually, there are ways of there are ways of talking about them. This is recognisable mm. territory. Mm. You are not lost in an uncharted wilderness where no one has ever been before. When you feel when you feel depressed or 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 or, or worthless, there are ways of talking mm. about this, and and it's an offer. It's not a. It's not. It's not persuasion. Persuasion implies overcoming. Yes. Overcoming a resistance. People usually have good reasons for resistance. It's a way of going of going. This has been helpful to me. Mm. Um, here it is. Mm. 
Yeah. Why wonder, not compare? I wonder if, so obviously this podcast is called Reenchanting. Yes. Um, and it's a sort of a pushback, not pushback, an acknowledgement and then a response to disenchantment. Um, yeah. mm. you know, from Max Weber. And I wonder if part of it is that is, you know, we're living in this age, arguably, some would say that we're not, but um, of disenchantment and stories, feelings, all of that, that can't be measured and it can't, they, it's not so easily explained and it's mm. not so easily analyzed. So I wonder if this idea that we don't have emotional vocabulary for ourselves, you know, whether religious or just generally, and we sort of have lost power in our own stories and the power of those um, or lost confidence in the power of them, sorry. I wonder if all of that is sort of almost a symptom of this disenchantment that we mm. think because we haven't got vocabulary to completely and utterly explain this feeling and put it in a neat box and then present it to the world, we won't present it to the world at all. Yeah. Um, and the same with our stories because they're messy, because they involve a bit of carnage. And because our, you know, we can't measure the success of them yet, we won't present them to the world yet. Yeah. Do you think that that might sort of be a bit of a connection to that? Yes. Um, I think the world is both disenchanted and also not. Um, mm. I I buy the kind of the argument you get from Charles Taylor's A Secular yeah. Age um, yeah. that we've gone fundamentally from a from a, a from from a world of 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 poorest selves where where the air is the air is 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 enchanted and there there are unseen forces all around us to one in which our fundamental model of human beings is a what he calls the buffered the buffered yeah. self and the world is 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 lacking in the old kind of 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 enchanted powers yeah. um but having said that, enchantment is also what human beings do. Our culture is mm. constantly re reweaving enchantment um, from whatever feelings, uh, whatever materials are available. We're like mm. kind of what are those things? Caddis caddis mm. flies that make their lavas from yeah. from from make 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 their casings from mm. from anything mm. around. We, okay. And we 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 are culture making creatures. We cannot stop producing enchantments it was one of the things that i thought was fundamentally wrong with the new atheist case is that they kept behaving as if as if belief in something was actually optional and could be kind right. of deleted yeah. from yeah. the human animal yes. and actually actually humans always believe in something mm. they were like people frantically frantically pruning a garden which whenever they turned their back burst out wildly <laughs> into kind of vines and and strange trumpet-shaped flowers um so so as i as i said in unapologetic i think the choice is really a choice of enchantments not but but the, the enchantments that grow in a world which has been disenchanted in the kind of mm. charles taylor or max weber sense are are often are often different from the past ones they're more ad hoc and impromptu and made people think themselves personally they often the materials to hand are kind of amazingly commercial and have been sort of pushed mm. upon you so mm. a lot of what people feel is most individual about themselves often turns out to be straight off tiktok as far yeah, as i can yeah, see yeah. um nevertheless people are constantly making meaning because mm. we are meaning making creatures so but isn't, isn't the argument of the new atheist though exactly well yes and that's where this story of yours comes from yeah. And, you know, and literally I can think of the title of one of, you know, the key New Atheist Daniel Dennett's book was 
unweaving the spell. It was yeah. literally about disenchanting. My and, point and, is that is that if you unweave this spell, another spell mm, will rapidly right. reweave itself even faster behind your <laughs> behind your back. And and I and and J.R.R. Tolkien are <laughs> leaning into your podcast to go. Yes, but what about a really good story that happens to be true? Right. Um, yes. Um, we can't prove it's true, obviously. But indeed, and you don't attempt to do that in apologetic. No. You you really are just about saying you're almost making people want it to be true, making appealing to their kind. Well, of that sense would be of, the beginning, but yeah. also you'd want it to be. You you'd need to know that you were wanting it to be true, not out of a desire to evade hard truths. You mm. wouldn't mm. want it to be true because you wanted the world to be wrapped in pink yeah. cotton wool, yeah. or that you wanted a happy ever after story, which was inconsistent with the dignity of scientific adulthood mm. um, which is the way I, I think some new atheists take it they think it's wish fulfillment yeah. whereas actually christianity seems more rueful and bruised than yeah. that to me yeah. not wish fulfillment but in some ways a difficult recognition that we're we're you know not the yeah. masters of our own intentions and we don't get to choose what we are exactly um it, 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 it's interesting to me that that in a sense though you know t- 10 or more years on since you wrote that book maybe it did the job because i feel like the new atheists well where are where are these books now i mean justin uh, i'm not sure that was me um <laughs> it's all down to unapologetic uh <laughs> I mean, I, I, what no, really not unless is, I have to own megalomania as well, which I'm, I'm really not, I'm not, not going to. I'm not saying you were the um, one factor that, that led you. to the fall of New Atheism. But, but no, what I mean really is that it feels like it was a, a moment of its time. Yeah, and, it and, and I suppose my question for you is, is, you know, if, if Belle's going to write the follow-up book, what, what is she actually if responding to now? Listening. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> what, she was, what, what are we responding okay. to now? It's, we don't have that, that big... You know, phalanx of of these old new atheists, no, no true, you know, yeah. creating this sort of quite neat and tidy, actually, kind of uh, oppositional sort of force. What what are we actually looking at there? I think this gets us back to enchantment, and I don't want to write your book for you, but, please um, provide the material yeah. and the endorsement. Okay, the new atheist moment had a lot to do with with generations. Um, it was. It was both a symptom of religion receding and something that could only happen before it had receded the whole way. Because if you look at the generation of people represented by Christopher Hitchens and, and, and Richard Dawkins and co, they were all people who had been formed reluctantly by sitting miserably through school assemblies <laughs> and having to sing All Things yes. Bright and Beautiful. And, and they got the last bit of British, yes. British kind of public culture mm. Christianity. Mm. And didn't like it very much, mm. and and were were very ready to blame it for for everything kind of um, irrational and oppressive and old and nasty in 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 human experience. But I think, and and they had a younger audience who found it, um, who found it, who found the aggression and the simplicity refreshing. And I think most of them could only believe it because they didn't actually have very much felt experience of religion to, to kind of cross-check it against. Otherwise, you'd go, hang on, that really doesn't sound very much like the churchgoers I know. Um, but but both of those moments have mm. have passed away. People don't... I mean, there's an opportunity and a problem for anyone who wants to talk religion now, which is that which is that the last bits of, of inherited Christianity, I think, are going. Mm. So, so there's more of a blank. So one thing that a book like Unapologetic now would need to talk into is, is even less 
kind of literacy in what the old answers mm. to complicated human problems yeah. used, used mm. to be. Um, but also, they'd need to talk into all of the new kinds of enchantment which we're being which we're being offered. Um, um, and I'm not really not the person to do it. I'm I am I am too old to 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 speak vigorously into into the kind of the you you're being slightly coy about what those new enchantments are but are you thinking of the know, sort of cause, cause the, I didn't know the, the ideology oh. some of these kind of yeah. you know ideologies currently floating around, yeah, around identity and sexuality and everything um, else or, or what or, not necessarily no but more what 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 they represent developments of what is right. what is behind yeah. them yeah. um yeah which are which are attempts at, attempts at, at 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 human perfectionism again, I think. Um, mm. But but in in new forms, it's right a heresy. Um, um, it's Pelagianism. It's the idea that, that that we can hoist ourselves by our own bootstraps, and that any transformation we require, we are capable of right. ourselves. And I, I it, it it hasn't been true ever, but it is culturally potent. Um, and it is, and it is, it is the simple answer to 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 the broken heart. It 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 offers to mend things by going. You're very powerful, right. and it is mm. it is only a consequence of of oppression that you feel sad, and that if right. we if we took it away, you'd be great. Mm. Um, and sometimes, you know, oppression is a real of thing. Course. That's yes. why I don't I don't I I mean I some there are generous. Things in contemporary culture, which I'd want to applaud, but I, um, it's not necessarily going to be the the answer in in that sense to no. to the old human problem of quite. Well, I mean, in any plausible society, humans will be humans, and that means that we will be coping with with our our propensity to f things up, basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And the institutional consequences yes. of those as well, because we aren't solitary creatures. Mm. So we 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 live surrounded by all of the the complex multi generational products of our of our tendency to to, to f things up <laughs> in in public as well as private ways. Yeah. Um, um, but that, again, that sounds too simple. And as the, yeah. that, that, I I would my manifesto would be for would be for generous curiosity um, mm. and to 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 kind of to to look for the sympathetic good in absolutely yeah. everything but the truth is i don't know how to name contemporary enchantments well um and i i can feel that i am passing out of of kind of tactile quick sympathy with with what's in the head of a 20 year old yeah. now yeah. um and somebody who knows the answer to that mm. needs to be writing into that not me I really enjoyed speaking with Francis you can find links to him and the full interview on the Reenchanting podcast from today's show notes
Did you know this podcast is also a book? The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again is available now. Historian Tom Holland says Justin has had a ringside seat watching the great debates on religion and reports on them with learning, subtlety and grace. Now, don't tell anyone, but you'll actually get the first chapter free in your email inbox if you subscribe to my newsletter. Or if you want to just go ahead and order, signed editions are available from my website. Or even better, you'll get both my books personally signed when you become a gold supporter of this podcast. So for the newsletter, the book or to support, check the links in the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. My next guest is Andrew Claven, a best-selling author whose crime novels have been turned into Hollywood films starring Clint Eastwood and Michael Douglas. He's also known as a political commentator and host of The Andrew Claven Show. In this conversation, which was originally broadcast on the Maybe God podcast, you'll hear about Andrew's journey from secular Jewish atheist to becoming a committed Christian and how his love of literature and poetry played a part in his adult conversion. He's written about both those things in his recent autobiographical books, The Great Big Thing and The Truth and Beauty, how the lives and works of England's greatest poets point the way to a deeper understanding of the words of Jesus. I began by asking Andrew about his experience of growing up in a non-religious Jewish household, but one where he was still forced to go to Hebrew school on the weekends. Well, it was it was very strange in a way. I, I was an all-American kid, grew up in a neighborhood that looked like, if you've ever seen a 60s sitcom about America, you know, Father Knows Best, that's what my neighborhood looked like. I, I loved baseball, I loved astronauts, and then every couple of days off I would go to Hebrew school because it was very important to my father to preserve the traditions of Judaism. He had been in World War II, he understood the Holocaust, he was very concerned about the survival of the Jewish people, all rightly so. But we didn't really believe in God. I mean, I, my mother was the most convicted atheist I ever met. She lived and died a complete atheist. She thought the whole thing, she used to call it hooey. It's hooey, you know, uh, just complete nonsense. My father was more a little bit on the fence. He was not the sort of guy who wanted to insult, uh, you know, a gigantic invisible spirit who could kill him, you know, just by thinking about it. But, but he really, there was no God in our family. There was no grace mm. set at meals. There were no nightly prayers. There was no question, what would God want you to do in this situation? It just didn't exist. And, and so for me, the problem was not Judaism per se. It was the nonsensical situation that I was in. All my life, I've had this obsession with making sense. It's actually a storyteller's obsession. How can I make my story make sense? And this was really important to me. I mean, I would daydream, and even my daydreams had to fit together. They could take place in a magical world, but the magical world had to make sense. And this made no sense to me. And so by the time I was supposed to be bar mitzvah, and I was bar mitzvah, but the time I got to that point, I had no belief in it whatsoever. I had no idea why I was learning this difficult language of Hebrew. I had no idea why I was going to a place and putting on a funny hat. Uh, I had no idea why, you know, I should even care about this thing. And, and that was a very common experience in my neighborhood because there were a lot of houses like mine where people were being told to cling to the traditions, mm. but there was no interior to those traditions. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I know, I, I remember you saying that your dad did have quite a visceral reaction though once when he caught you as a teenager reading a gospel. Um, so it, it, it seems like there was a bit of a threat almost to the idea of you possibly even thinking about converting to Christianity even at that point. 
very much so and very common among Jews, certainly of his generation, but but Jews in general, and they have a point. You know, they've been tormented and chased from pillar to post and excluded often by Christians, often by Christian theology, I think misguided Christian theology, and they've come to the point where they think of the Christians as those guys, you know, the Cossacks who are coming to get them. And my father certainly had that point of view. It was not that he was prejudiced against any individual uh, Christian person. His partner for most of his life was a Christian guy, but he did have the sense that this outside culture was coming to get us. Uh, as he grew older, he became more and more obsessed, almost uh, clinically, pathologically obsessed with the Holocaust returning. We, you know, you could never trust these people. They were always going to get you. And one day I, I started I started reading the Gospels for purely literary reasons. I realized that they were part of the great sto- all the great stories I loved. And so I sat down at about the age of 15 and started reading the Gospel according to Luke because I it had Christmas in it and I knew about Christmas, which was about <laughs> virtually all I knew of Christian theology. And uh, he caught me. Uh, and uh, which was was very funny, uh, you know, in a way. He was furious. He caught me reading the Gospel according to St. Luke, and he was absolutely livid. And I always think about this. It's, it was kind of sad, but it was also kind of funny because I was 15. I was reading a lot of other things I should not have been reading. Uh, it was it was the 60s, and I was sexually active. He could have literally walked in on me with a girl, uh, but he walked in on me reading the Gospels, and he was just furious. He screamed at me. He pointed his finger in my face and said, if you ever think of converting, uh, I will disown you. It was something I, that I thought that hadn't even flitted right. through my brain. I was just It was just yeah. as if I was doing research. Uh, but he was very upset by it. Yeah, well, maybe we'll we'll come back to, to to your story, obviously, as it did develop later. And um, but but to some extent, you know, your early life, God was very much uh, a, you know, not not even a thought in your mind. I mean, you were bar mitzvahed, however. So what what was that, and what did it mean to you at the time? It was it was very sad. I mean, I never I didn't want to do it. I didn't have the courage at 13 to stand up to my father and tell him I told him I didn't want to do it, but I didn't have the courage to defy him because he insisted on it. And I, I really felt in, along with my obsession for making sense was my obsession for what they nowadays call authenticity, which I just thought was you should say what you mean and you should be who you appear to be. And it was a, really a painful thing for me to stand up and say words that I didn't believe. I didn't really manage to memorize the Hebrew portion that I was supposed to uh, read, and I actually ad-libbed some of it, which nobody knew in that neighborhood that I was making up Hebrew words to get past the uh, lacunae, you know. And um, and and so it had a feeling of, of genuine hypocrisy. At the same time, I got a great big party. Uh, there was lots of dancing, you know, all my friends were there, and it was a very, uh, you know, celebratory thing. And on top of that, I got a lot of gifts. I grew up in a very, I won't say, it wasn't a wealthy neighborhood, but it was a well-to-do, upper-middle-class neighborhood. And so I was, uh, just like at a sort of Italian wedding, I was given all these uh, bonds and bills and gold jewelry and silver jewelry and all kinds of things all of which I put into this leather uh, jewelry box. Uh, and, and, you know, for quite a while, I was entranced by this. I had never had anything of my own before. And now I had what amounted to thousands and thousands of dollars of my own that was just in this box, mm. uh, except that over the coming months, I began to feel it was ill-gotten gains. Uh, I had lied, and they had given me all this stuff. And that didn't fit very well with my obsession with making sense and being who I was. 
And one day, uh, I, I, I'm guessing, I can't really remember, I'm guessing about six months after my bar mitzvah, uh, my father was a morning radio announcer, DJ, and so he would leave the house very early. And so I woke up, and he would go to bed very early. And so I got up out of bed when the whole house was asleep. I crept outside with this box full of thousands of dollars of gifts, and I threw it away. I stuffed it in the outdoor garbage can down low so nobody would find it and uh, waited you know, tensely for the garbage man to come and take it away. And that was supposed to be the end of my religious associations. I could see no reason why I should suffer through that kind of guilt and hypocrisy ever again. Yeah, it was almost like physically burying the idea of God somehow subconsciously. Yeah. But um, I, I just your story about the, your feelings of, of hypocrisy during your bar bits just reminded me suddenly of, I think it's in Surprise by Joy that C.S. Lewis talks about as a young man him going through confirmation and not believing a word of it. And, you know, he says... I was eating and drinking my own condemnation. <laughs> yeah, my first that, communion, <laughs> you know. Um, so there you go. There's some some parallels. Um, uh, well, just obviously, as as your sort of interests in literature progressed, you I, I know you were influenced by sort of quite sort of masculine, heroic type writers, um, uh, Hemingway and others. Uh, wh- where where was your own kind of writing going? Were you experimenting yourself at this point with with a writing career? Yeah, I started, uh, I wrote my first novel when I was 14, and it was every bit as good as you would guess, <laughs> but but I did it. I sat there and actually typed yeah. it out on a, you know, it was before computers, I typed it out on a typewriter, and I was very, very dedicated to it, because because as you say, it wasn't just, it, it was the image of masculinity that I was looking for. I grew up in a house with three brothers and a father, and I didn't really feel that I had a place or I had a role model that I wanted to model myself on. And so I was looking for that in both literature and in the old films that were then the only films you could see on television. And I found it in these tough guy characters. There was something about them that spoke to me, not just their, you know, uh, the fact that they could fight with their fists and they were tough and all this, but also a kind of honesty, a kind of level-headed cold eye that they cast on life and death Mm. that really did appeal to something in my personality. And and I think that I was looking for that, and I found it not just if, at first in Hemingway, certainly in guys like Humphrey Bogart on the on the screen, but really it was Raymond Chandler and his private detective Philip Marlowe. Uh, Chandler, Marlowe was a guy who brought the old world of knighthood into a corrupt modern world, and that was kind of the thesis that Chandler was working on. And he had a wonderful essay on. Called, I think it was called The Simple Art of Murder, about what he wanted to do. And he said, he said, down these mean streets, is where we get this expression, mean streets. He said, down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. And I remember reading that sentence and thinking, that, that's what I want to be like. I want to be that guy who brings this knighthood, which I was also, I was also fascinated by the Arthurian mm-hmm. myths, who brings that into the world that I can see is not that world. And um, it wasn't a bad model. It was not a bad yeah. model for life. It was a you know, good thing mm-hmm. to try, at least, you know, even in all your failures, to have in front of you an image to have in front of you. Yeah. I mean, as you developed in that sort of pursuit of writing career and so on and, and sort of busied yourself reading all these great works of literature and so on, you, you were also struggling, I know, with what we would call today mental health issues. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think you recognized it, though, at the time as, as essentially a de- depression, though perhaps not recognized or treated in the same way we might do today what what were you going through in in those years in your in your teens and 20s and so on 
Well, I, I was re I'm really glad I went through it then before now they would have drugged me and I'm really happy that didn't happen. Um, but I but I went through it was bad. I mean, I started drinking pretty heavily in my teens. I was very alienated from my my uh, colleagues, my fellow students, mm -hmm. very hostile toward my teachers. Sometimes when I look back on it, I'm, I'm just ashamed of ways in which I may have physically intimidated female teachers, though I have to say in my defense, I had no idea I was doing that at the time. But I was a big hulking guy and I would just be furious. Uh, I was, as I say, sexually active when I should not have been in ways I should not have been. And just, uh, you know, I was intensely, intensely uh, connected to that. Once you find that, it's a, a thing that, you know, gives you pleasure and gives you some sense of worth. And, and so that was part of my life. And, um, and and I was completely undirected toward toward my own career, toward my own future. I wanted to be a drifter. You know, I loved drifter stories like On the Road by Kerouac and all those songs that they were singing in those days. And so I wandered around the country for years. Uh, I slept in hobo camps. I was, you know, absolutely kind of lost in this world of, of fantasy and trying to find out who I was. And and when I did finally go to university, I really plummeted into an almost word. I almost couldn't speak. I was sleeping 15, 16, 17 hours a day. I had no idea what was happening to me. And uh, And one of the reasons I'm really happy that I wasn't drugged or didn't go to any to get any help from anybody is I was forced to finally say, I've got to get out of this. And I got out of it by doing things, certain things that I don't usually do, like joining clubs and in participating in uh, social events and in uh, you know, organizations at the university. And that actually brought me out of it to the point where I became at least functional again. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you did find a woman that you fell head over heels in love with. Um, that, you obviously, had, you know, had a child as well in your 20s. What I mean, but this was going on alongside these kind of periods of of, of depression and, and so on. Yeah, it was cyclical. They would come around, you know, I, I used to call them the bolo, but mm. like a weapon that wraps itself around your throat because uh, sometimes it would be better and sometimes it would be worse. Um, I was my my wife. Uh, I've been married to her now. I picked her up hitchhiking, and I've now been married to her for forty three years. We've been together for forty five years. A gift from God. I mean, my mm -hmm. wife was true as steel. Uh, she was she was the person I turned to when I realized I was absolutely cracking up. Uh, you know, I said I have to get help. Something's terribly wrong with me. When it finally, you know, finally just spiraled into the pit. Mm -hmm. And and if I am. If I can congratulate myself on anything, it is the fact that I was absolutely tormented by rage. And because she was the person closest to me, I was often enraged at her. And yet not once that I can remember did I ever blow explode at her. Mm. What I would say to her is I'm experiencing rage, you know. Uh, you know, sometimes I would say, just get away from me because I, I can't control myself, but I never took it out on her. I always mm. let her know that something was happening in me that had nothing to do with her. And I was really glad, I'm really glad looking back that I understood mm. that I never abused her. I never, you know, emotionally or physically, um, but, but I felt it all the time. And so yeah. it could be something really stupid, like she would leave a towel lying on the floor and I would be, you know, red eyed with rage. Mm. Uh, I was absolutely out of control. And finally, I just cracked. I just cracked up. I, I went nuts. Uh, when I was in my late 20s, um, I, I don't know how else to say it. I went insane. Wow. But you did come out of it again. Tell us the story because you're you're one of the people for whom you say 
therapy worked. It, it really made a difference. Well, that, that is a really interesting thing and a really interesting kind of station on my journey to Christ and, and just to theism in general. Mm. Because, you know, I, I got to the point I was, you know, having kind of weird mystic hallucinations. I was, su- I was su- absolutely suicidal. I was ready to, to go. I mean, I've dealt with suicidal people and I showed all the symptoms mm. of being quite serious about it. And uh, I said to my wife, I got to get help. And she found me a psychiatrist. Mm. And again, by the grace of God, he just happened to be the right guy. He was a very smart guy. He was about 15 years older than I was, came also from a Jewish background, totally secular guy. And he cured me, which is really rare. And, you know, most therapy doesn't work. And most (laughs) therapists aren't very good, you know, Uh, especially for deep, the kind of deep problems I have. I think Mm -hmm. therapy can be good for counseling, but... But he really locked into something in me, and we he adjusted me in ways it was almost like growing up a second time and he he helped me n- navigate this difficult relationship I had with my father by sort of replacing him as my older brother slash father figure that I could relate to and The reason I say it was such an interesting thing because I went in there suicidal and came out. I was in therapy for five years, but after two years, I was a joyful, I was a completely different human being. I mean, I was just completely changed. I was happy. I was, uh, you know, uh, being, I was able to use my skills. I was able to live in in the world and operate in the world. But the thing that came back to me later was that everything we had said that was philosophical or Freudian or psychological wasn't true. And so, so I was left with the question, if, if he cured me, and he did, and yet the things that we were talking about, the kind of Freudian ideas we were talking about, weren't true, what cured me? And it very quickly became clear to me, and now I see this in, in therapy all the time, that it was the love between us. Uh, we had a very special father-son, big brother, yeah. little brother relationship, and it was not the normal relationship. My mm. wife's a, a, a therapist, and it was not a normal thing. We had something very, we connected in a certain way. Mm. And that brought me back to this idea of love, which because of the love of my wife, because of the love of this guy, because I had witnessed love in a the, my one mystical, my one real mystical experience when my daughter was mm. born, And I actually saw myself swept into the sea of love through the love that I felt for Mm. my wife and daughter. It became a kind of central idea to me that there was this actual thing called Mm. love, and it was Mm. not an emanation of sex. In fact, I thought it was actually the other way around. And so that was a very important kind of station in my movement toward the cross. So there were these these various moments and and relationships that sort of... you, you can retrospectively look back on and see the way in which they informed your journey towards Christ. Um, before we kind of get to that point, I mean, coming back to the literature you were reading, I, I also remember reading you talking about the way that some some of the novels, even in your sort of you know, godless sort of state, did sort of speak to you about something transcendent. I think um, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment was quite significant um, as as one particular novel that that kind of impressed itself upon you in terms of the the nature of morality, for instance. You want to talk a little about that? Yeah, I mean, crime, you know, people sometimes ask me, what's your favorite novel? And that's a, a, a question that doesn't make any sense to people who love literature. <laughs> you know, there's so many novels that you love. But Crime and Punishment is the most important novel in my life because I was going to, to university at a time when some of the philosophy that has now taken over our culture was just seeping up. 
uh, into the university mind, into the academic mind. And so moral relativism was very big. The idea that words had no meaning, had no real connection to meaning, uh, that Hamlet line that there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so, which I I now joke that, you know, Hamlet was pretending to be crazy when he said that, (laughs) where my university professors were pretending to be sane. And, And I sat down to read Crime and Punishment. I don't remember why exactly. I was about 19 years old. And and it's a story of a murderer who, you know, who has these kind of the same similar kind of theories and he commits murder and then realizes that, oh, no, he's trapped in this moral web that actually exists. And in the murder scene, which is one of the great as a crime writer, is one of the great crime scenes in all of literature, possibly the greatest crime scene in all of literature. He acts murders both an old woman and her sister who is mentally retarded, you know, he's mentally defective. Mm And the scene is so horrifying to have, see a man who's not essentially evil do this thing where he drives the axe into this head of a woman who doesn't even understand what's going on. The idea that there was no such thing as actual evil became impossible to believe because there was nothing about that scene that couldn't have been real. I mean, it was a fictional scene, but it could have been non-fictional. Certainly worse things have happened. How could you look at that and say, well, some people might say it's evil. Some people might say it's good. It all depends on your culture. You know, <laughs> you know I thought like, no, I'm, I'm sorry. That's an evil act. And if everybody on earth thought that was a good act, except for the woman being axe murdered, it would still be an evil act. Mm. And that's an important fact. I mean, if everybody in the universe thought it was a good act, it would still be an evil act. Mm. And so that acted as a prophylactic against the relativism and the postmodernism and the where is reality and there is no reality philosophy that was then rising up and really engulfing me. So that while for years I argued with that philosophy and for years I wrote novels that were kind of keyed around the problems that I think are legitimately raised by that philosophy, I never believed it. I could never Mm. believe it. And once you, I've always said I've only ever taken one leap of faith in my, my, my life. Uh, when Jewish people convert, they tend to convert over logic. I've, I've, the, everyone I've met, they've never had the kind of hallelujah experience. It's always been, hmm, you know, it's not making sense to me. Um, but, but the one leap of faith I ever took in my life was to say that some things are bad and some things are good, no matter who believes what. That's my one leap of faith. I can't prove that. That's an axiom. That's a self-evident truth that mm. to axe murder, to axe murder a mentally defective woman or anybody. It, it is an evil act. That's my mm. one leap of faith. And from there, you can't get away from God. One the, yeah. it, it took me, you know, 30 years to figure it out, but it's, you're really stuck at that point. Yeah. I, I guess I would, I would almost call it an intuition. And some, some things are almost obvious to us, but we can't, we can't give them a rational justification. We just have to say, well, if you can't see it, you can't see it. But um, yeah, I, I mean, it, did, did you at any point sort of connect this with the idea that well, if I believe there is this moral reality, there must be some kind of moral lawgiver, or was that sort of still some way down the line, that kind of Lewis type kind of putting the pieces together? No, it was it was worse than that. I did make the connection. I, I could see, I could follow the logic. I mean, the logic was just too clear. But I was in so much mental pain that I thought to believe in God would be a crutch. Mm. And so I was so stubborn. <laughs> Such a stiff-necked son of a gun, you know, that basically I said, well, I'm not going to believe in this when I'm in so much emotional pain. Instead of reaching out for the life 
you know, the lifesaver that was being thrown to me, uh, the hand that was clearly reaching down for me. And now looking back, I can see it almost everywhere. Instead of doing that, I thought, no, you know, then I, how will I ever believe it? It's kind of like today when I hear somebody say, well, I took LSD and now I believe in God. I always think, well, what if you had taken LSD and saw a gigantic cartoon mouse? Would you believe in, you know, Walt Disney? What, you know, what, what does that even mean? So I, I couldn't, I couldn't trust my own logic as long as I was miserable. Yeah. I mean, going back to that stage, there were moments of clarity. And uh, I, again, remember reading you talking about uh, this one moment where you were thinking of ending it all. And um, I guess you, you, you were looking down your nose a bit at people who talked a lot about faith and Jesus, but there was one particular, I think it was a baseball game or something on in the background that kind of suddenly came through to you. Do you want to just tell that story and, and the significance of it? Yes, and I, I just want to say before I do that when I wrote my memoir, The Great Good Thing, uh, it was shocking how often God was speaking to me in in clearly Christian ways, you know, clearly through Christ, uh, and I just couldn't see. I was just absolutely blind yeah. to it. And one of the one of my favorite ball players at that time was a, a baseball player named Gary Carter, who was a catcher on the New York Mets. And the New York Mets were having a moment. They would eventually go on to win the World Series, the championship game. And Carter was just one of those ca characters who goes out and gives everything to every baseball game, always came away with a dirty uniform, always, you know, throwing himself at the game. And he was a Christian. And after every game, they would talk to him. And he was always going, doing the Jesus thing, you know, yeah, thank Jesus, Jesus. And it was like, it was like dropping a caterpillar down the back of my shirt every time he did it, because I just thought, oh, you know, don't, please don't talk about that. And I was sitting one night at the what I think was the lowest emotional point of my life. And I was literally with my daughter in the nursery and my wife in the other room. I was literally thinking of climbing up on the roof and killing myself. And I was uh, thinking that they'd both be better off without me. I mean, I, w <laughs> I wish you could go back and slap that kid. But wow. still, you, yeah. know, I was I, that, you know, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, I don't know how to live. You know, how do I live? And while I was doing this in the darkness, I was sitting in the dark, smoking, drinking, and there was a radio on playing a baseball game in the background. And Carter uh, won the game. He was, he was a catcher, and his knees were gone. Catchers have to squat through the whole game, and his knees were just destroyed. And he hit a, a ground ball and beat the throw to first base. He ran so fast, he beat the throw to first base, and a run scored, and he was basically responsible for winning the game. And afterwards, the interviewer came up to him and said, how did, how did you manage to run so fast when your knees are so bad? Because he was famously slow. And I'm sitting there, and I kind of kind of entered my mind while I was thinking, how do you live? How do you live? And normally he would have said something like, well, Jesus this or Jesus, you know, he was just that kind of guy. And I wouldn't have listened to a word he said. I would just would have gone right past me. But instead he just said, well, sometimes you have to play in pain. And that, that was all he said. And the minute he said it, I thought, oh, I, you know, I can do that. I'm a hard character. I can, I, I can play and I can get through this. I can do this. And uh, I look back, <laughs> I look back and it always moves me just to talk about it because I feel like God put himself out of the picture. So I could hear it, you know, which is a, a powerful, powerful uh, statement of his humility and his grace. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's like another lifetime, pal, but yeah. I it can't yeah. get away from it. Yeah. Uh, so so, yeah, it was just like it was a mighty moment for me because it changed everything. I never thought of suicide again. Never, ever. Mm. And I was weeks away. I was weeks away from so many revelations that would change my life for the better. 
yeah. uh, trying to figure out how to write the kind of things I could write and give meaning to it. Yeah. Uh, like two weeks later, I read this wonderful British novel, The Woman in White, and I thought, ah, that's how that's done. It was like, bang, like yeah. that. I had a, a revelation in therapy that put me on a totally different track. It was all, I, I thought I was at the in the pit of hell. Yeah. I was at the end of the tunnel. It was just like around the corner. And uh, so, yeah, it comes back to me. It still breaks my heart yeah. that I was that close and that but, God was that great. Yeah, but you played through the pain and yeah. you... Um, and obviously this was by no means the end of the story but but it's it's just great to hear the way that that you can look back on those things and just just yeah. you know obviously still brings back the emotion of of that moment and, and what it meant seeing god's grace you know retrospectively in that moment um before we come to your to your conversion i feel like yeah. we're, we're you know really winding up to it here but um your writing career was taking off you know um not you know it, it, at, at some point you started to really get into your flow and um, you, you, you became very successful writing crime and mystery thrillers and so on um, to the point where Hollywood came knocking. Tell, tell us yeah. about that. What, 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 what was that all like? It was hilarious. I, I have to say, because, I, you know, we we lived from paycheck to paycheck. I had I had day jobs and I was working. You know, there was a time when I was in the news business. I would go and write radio news at three o'clock in the morning because that's the important time. So I would work from three to ten and come back, play with my kid take a nap and then start writing because I wanted so badly to be a writer. So we were, you know, and we were, I was constantly saying, well, we've got enough money to get through this week. We've got enough money to get through this month. Sometimes we were ahead of the game, sometimes two months. So help. And I'm starting to publish these novels, mostly under pseudonyms. And I'm just kind of learning how to do it. And I'm sitting on the edge of the bed with a pad and pencil, trying to figure out how much money we've gotten, how long before I have to start really worrying about it and, and working double shifts and all this stuff. The phone rings behind me <laughs> and I reach back and I pick it up and it's a guy I've never heard of before who's a Hollywood agent, but he works for my literary agent. So he's actually working for me without my knowing it. And he has sold one of my books to Hollywood for a sum that to me was like a shower of gold. I mean, it was just like, you know, I mean, even today it's a lot of money, but it wasn't, you know, now it, it, to me, it looked like I'd never have to work again. To me, it was like, <laughs> I'm retiring, you know? Um, and I, I remember the first time I put a, one of those checks into the bank, I, you know, I, I could not believe what I was looking at, but it suddenly meant we were no longer dealing in months or weeks. We were dealing in, oh, I can live for the next year, yeah. two years. And that means so much to a writer yeah. because it means that you don't have to be distracted by this, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. the need to make a, a buck. And um, and they started, you know, I, I was from there. I was hired to write a script, which became a Michael Caine movie, which, by the way, a shock to the system. It's a good movie. It actually turned out really well. It didn't didn't do that well in the box office, but it turned out well. <laughs> And and that that script kind of made me the flavor of the month. So for a while, I was making good Hollywood movie uh, money, and my books were all getting optioned one after another. Uh, and so it really changed my life. And mm. uh, it it never, <laughs> you know, I, I I never loved writing for the movies, uh, mm. but I would do it from time to time, and it was lucrative and takes you know can take two years to write a novel. It can take six weeks to write a script and the mm, pay is mm, spectacular. Mm, mm. And so, you know, I would do it from time to time. It was just always a really, really useful thing. And I, I used to have, I, I doubt we can find it now, but my wife took a picture of me once 
that it's hard it's hard to convey what a, a shocking change it was to go from you know oh we're having spaghetti again to this we're sending a limousine to pick you up to fly you first class to Hollywood for a meeting and I remember <laughs> taking this picture of me out the window as I got into this limousine kind of waved to her you know bye bye I'm off to Hollywood and uh, it, it was pretty shocking you know? yeah I I can imagine um. So as as you were experiencing, you know, your your career taking off and, and, you know, suddenly you didn't have to live from week to week when it came to paying the bills and that kind of thing. Um, and you were in this much better place personally, it, it sounded like. You, you you were kind of, you know, a happier person and so on. Um, uh, tell us about sort of the, the gradual journey then, because you've, you've uh, given us lots of little milestones along the way where yeah. retrospectively you can see the hand of God and... and you know some of the reminders that that he was there in the journey but but when when did the god thing really start to come into focus for you well you know as as we started to get independent and i didn't have to be in new york anymore which i never really liked uh, we moved to england we moved to london mm. and um, i loved london i mean i just I, I got off the plane and i turned to my we went for a year and stayed for seven years and uh, I got off the plane. I turned to my wife. I said, I'm never li- leaving. I love this place already, you know. And I, I just, I, I really did. Uh, the British hate themselves so much. They, they, I always say they, they only hate themselves a little less than everybody else. But they, I, would, I would say to them, I love this country. And they would say, why? <laughs> like, you don't know what you've got here, you know. So, so now I was a working writer. I, I had two wonderful children and things were, were going great and we were living okay, you know, well. And, um, and, I, and I was happy and I started to think, well, you know, I had this, this idea that there had to be a God if there was a moral order. And mm. I didn't believe it because I was miserable. Mm. Now I'm happy. Do I still believe this? Do I still believe that this is true? And slowly in in struggle and not with any kind of passion or emotion i started to think you know it does really hold together i cannot make this work any other way and then one night i was lying in bed and i was reading my favorite novelist at that time was patrick o'brien i don't know if you've ever read him he wrote yes he wonderful... writes a lot of those um yeah sailing sort of adventure sea stories, stories. Yeah, yeah great adventure stories and, but he's also a brilliant writer he's he's really one of the best writers of his time and I loved his, he had this character who was a, an intellectual spy. And I, he was very admirable because he had nothing, you know, because he was not, he was very ugly, but he had this kind of brain that was, mm. keep him, kept him ahead of everybody else. I'm lying in bed and he, the character, uh, Maturin is also lying in bed and he's about to go to sleep and I'm about to go to sleep. And it said, he said a prayer because he was Catholic. He said a prayer and went to sleep. And I thought... Well, if Matron can say a prayer, maybe, I, you know, I can say a prayer, you know, come on. I mean, you know, how, how proud am I going to be here? And I, and I said this three word prayer, which was thank you, God, because I had come through my own little hell, you know, and here I was. And there were my two beautiful children sleeping in the next room and my wife, who I've adored since the day I met her sleeping next to me. And I thought, like, you know, it's a wonderful life. You know, I, I could at least say thank you. Fell asleep, woke up the next morning and everything had physically changed. My vision had had cleared. It was a very strange experience. Suddenly, everything had this incredible clarity to me. And all my life, since I was a little boy, I had thought about seeing things, the difficulty of actually seeing what's in front of you. And suddenly, I did. And I called it, I, I remember calling it the joy of my joy, because up until that moment, 
I had been happy, but I hadn't really experienced the happiness. I mean, I knew if you had asked me, if you said, how are things going? I would have said things are going great, Mm -hmm. but I didn't like, wasn't living it. And suddenly I was, suddenly I just felt it. And I realized that the only thing that had changed was I had said this prayer. And so I thought, well, I'm going to keep doing that. (laughs) That worked out well. I'm going to continue (laughs) doing that. And, um, and, and so I, I would start to pray. Every day, like on the, I would walk to work and I would sort of say a prayer and the prayer went from three words to five minutes long until finally, you know, it was a half hour walk to work and I was praying the entire way. And that went on for five years and it had no theology behind it. Uh, I had at that point had read the Bible many times because of its literary value. So I knew, you know, I was in, I was educated in it, but it, I didn't have any theology behind it. And in fact, some of my prayer adventures were kind of hilarious because I didn't know any prayers. I didn't have any, you know, rituals or anything like that. Uh, so I was making them up as I went along, and I was wondering, well, how, you know, how far can you take this? Could you ask for a new car and you just get home and there's a new car? You know, I don't know. You know, and so I was just kind of working it out with God. But it did become very clear to me that I wasn't talking to myself. Uh, there's an old line in a Peter O'Toole movie where he says he he realized he was Jesus when he found that he, every time he was praying he was talking to himself. Uh, I had the opposite experience. I I realized I, information was coming in that I had no way other way of getting. Mm. And after five years or so, we had then moved back to America and we moved to uh, Hollywood because I had started writing, actually writing for the movies. I wanted to try it. I was getting into my 40s. I, you know, it's a young man's game. I just thought I'd try it out. And I would continue praying. And one day, and, and at this point, I'm a screenwriter. So I've got like the beautiful BMW, you know, the, and I'm driving around Santa Barbara in the hills, but I'm still praying behind the wheel of my BMW. <laughs> and and I, I said to God, you know, my life in the five years that I've been praying has gone to a new level of understanding and depth and joy. And that's all you. You know, you did that. I, the insights that I got, I got from you. I didn't, that was not me. I don't know how to thank you for that because you're God and I'm, you know, as you see, you know, I'm like a schmo. So, so I, I, I didn't, I didn't know what I should do. And, and the answer came to me and it wasn't, it wasn't spoken aloud. It was not hearing voices. It was as close to that as you can come. You should get baptized. Mm. And I was, remember driving in my BMW convertible, and I said, and I was praying silently, but I suddenly blurted out, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and because it, it was a, a mess. What a mess that would be to be baptized. I was working in Hollywood. Uh, I was already too conservative for them. The idea that I was then become a Christian, you know, what would that be like? Uh, my father and I, after many years, had kind of made a separate peace. We were never close, but at least we were friendly with one another. I thought if he find, oh my God, you know, if he's, he's and I'm not going to keep it secret. So it's, you know, I was doing interviews and things. So I was yeah. going to be in the papers. And uh, so that's going to blow up in my face. Uh, all my friends were, I lived on the East and West Coast most of my life, and in London, most of the people I knew were secular. Uh, so I thought this is this is a bad deal, you know. This is like not. I've got I've got to go check my work. So <laughs> I really I really spent the next five months doing you know arguing with God. You know, it's like I it was such a clear message that I had to listen to it. But I went back and reread the Gospels, and for the first time in my life, I read them as if they were true. All that time, I'd been reading them as literature. And so I found meaning in them. I wrote about them. I talked about why they were so central to Western literature. But this time I thought, what if you just read them like, this is a report Mm. from the ground. These guys Mm. saw this thing, and now they're writing about it. And then suddenly I thought, oh, now 
it makes complete sense. Now I understand entirely what was happening. And so by the end of five months, and I was also concerned because I had lived such an assimilationist life. I didn't want to turn my back on Jews, you know. I love Jews, and I love, mm. you know, my fellow Jews, and I, I didn't want anybody to think that I was running away from bigotry or anything like that. So it was all mm. very, you know, fraught. And um, and no, I found, like, it all made sense. The, every yeah. step, as you said, there were all these steps along the way. Mm. Every step had been a step and had made sense, and here I was, and it was really the only thing I could do to remain authentic. You didn't have many Christian influences around you. You were obviously going on this journey almost solo. Um, what, was there anyone that you did find was able to sort of help you as you started to navigate this path? Yeah, you know, I had a, a friend who was a priest, an Episcopal priest. And the funny thing about it is I've sometimes thought that I believed more than he did. I, I don't know if you know Episcopalians. It's only it's just tangentially a Christian religion. Uh, but, but um, it, you know, he he did know theology and we did talk theology. And so I, I got in touch with him and I just said, look, this is what's happening. And um, he said, yeah, I always sort of figured that would happen to you. You always seem to be on that path. And so he was the guy I talked to about it. Mm-hmm. My wife, as always, was just as, you know, like you, she could have just said, this is nuts. But instead, she said, well, if that's where you are, you know, at that point, she did not believe in God. Though soon after she came to for her own, entirely her own reasons. But she didn't at that point. She just said, look, you know, that you've always been an honest thinker, mm-hmm. you know, do your thing. And the thing with my father, which I thought was going to be the most fraught thing was, but not in the way that I expected, uh, he came, he, we were out in California, and he and my mother came out to visit us. They were in New York, and he he walked in the door, and I was sort of thinking, this may be the moment when I have to break this woman. He walked in the door and said, I've got to go home. I'm seeing double. And at, the, at first, this was comical to me because whenever he, he had this neurotic habit, whenever he traveled, some emergency would call him home. Almost every time. And it was always nonsense. It was always, I have to go back to this. And it never was true. It was always cutting trips short. So I laughed. But in fact, he was, uh, he was deathly ill. And it was his, uh, you know, it was his death sentence. And he started to deteriorate. And I would go back. My priest friend was in New York. And so I would go back to see my father uh, and visit with him as he was failing. And then I would go from his house and go over and see the priest to sort of prepare for baptism. And I, I never told my father because I thought, why would I? It would break his heart mm-hmm. and uh, it wasn't going to change his life any. He was not going to suddenly say, oh, hallelujah, I see the light. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it, when he died, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, if I wrote, the, you know, if I, if I did make it up, you, you wouldn't believe it. He died in the week that the Holy Week that was both that year, Holy Week and Passover, in the in the middle of the week and then i went home to california on easter and um and just remember sort of being in suffused with with light uh at the same time i, I was grieving i was very sad to have lost my father but i also had this light around me because i felt that i had found the truth of the true father uh, an eternal father and it was uh again you couldn't make it up you just couldn't yeah. make it up What an extraordinary story Andrew Claven has. That particular interview was first recorded for the Maybe God podcast. And you can find links to Andrew and the full conversation with the show notes from today's episode. 
I hope you've enjoyed these fuller dialogues with two fascinating examples of authors and novelists who are being drawn to Christ in the surprising rebirth of belief in God. Perhaps you know a story I should be featuring on this podcast. Feel free to get in touch via my newsletter if so. I'll be continuing to bring these kinds of long-form conversations about surprising conversions in between the acts of our documentary series in coming weeks. This podcast series is also a book. You can read the first chapter for free when you join my newsletter at justinbriley.com, where you can also order the book or get a signed copy. Today's episode was a production of Think Faith in partnership with Genexis and with support from the Jerusalem Trust. Also, a special shout out to some new supporters of this podcast who are making a huge difference. Eric, Bill, Patty, Joshi, Paul, Ken and more. I'm passionate about bringing the Christian and non-Christian world into conversation and your support makes a huge difference. You can give through Patreon, PayPal or tax-deductible giving from the USA. Silver supporters get early access to new episodes of the podcast plus bonus content. Gold-level supporters will also get signed copies of my books and a monthly catch-up with me if you want it. The links are with today's show. Coming up next time. The Bible is this silly book written by, as Lawrence Krauss, the atheist says, you know, ignorant Bronze Age peasants. But when I, when I watched the first one, I was just blown away. You know, I'd never heard the Bible spoken about in that way. Why does the Bible refuse to die? We return for Act 4 of our documentary series as we explore the surprising rebirth of the Bible. As ever, please do subscribe to this podcast, rate and review us, and share it on social media. It really helps others to discover it. Plus, you can get the next episode you just heard a clip from right now when you support at justinbriley.com. Again, the link is with today's show. Thanks, and see you next time. Thanks for listening. Just before I let you go, I had this lovely review from Chrissy saying, so good. I've literally consumed this podcast in three days. I've sent it to all my friends from various backgrounds. I pray you guys continue the amazing work and keep those episodes coming. Leaving a review like Chrissy really helps others to discover the show. But if you'd really like to help me keep those episodes coming, why not consider supporting the show or buying the book that this podcast is based on? The links are with today's show or visit justinbriley.com. See you at the next episode.